Chris Bauer, uh, just I guess a few things about me. I'm uh, from Virginia originally, um, out in LA now for six and a half months after living in Chicago for three years. At first glance, Chris doesn't exactly look approachable. He's tall, well over six feet, with a shaved head and a scruffy pirate's beard. But talk to him for one minute and you'll realize he's probably the most thoughtful person in a five mile radius. I hit Chris with my usual starter question and ask him what the best part of his week was. The part that I enjoyed the most was last night, no, night before last, on Friday evening, I hung out with some wonderful people at a, one of those bars that has games. We played Jenga, and all of the little blocks had instructions written on them, something anyway, and I drew one that said, tell a stranger they're cool, and so I just looked at the guy at the next table and was like, hey, you're cool, and like he seemed like he really needed to hear it. He was like, oh my god, oh, thanks, man, and like shook my hand, and it was fun. When I asked Chris which positive news article he brought, he looks at me and smiles this guilty smile. Something else to know about Chris is that he has a predilection for the macabre. But don't worry, he turns it around. This is about a woman who was an emergency room nurse, and her ex-husband hired a hitman to kill her with a hammer. So he came to her house to kill her with a hammer, and, and she killed him with her bare hands. So... I, I got a, full, a few pull quotes from this, which I love. The last, she says, uh, his last words on this earth were, you're strong. How badass is that? And another good quote, she says, uh, I didn't choose his death, I chose my life, which is an amazing thing for anybody to say. But I love that it's just this emergency room nurse, like in her 50s, who married this piece of shit guy, and then he decided to try and hire a hitman to kill her, which is, you know, one of the most horrifying things that you could possibly do. And it's not, I guess, conventionally uplifting, like it's not Christmassy, you know what I mean? But I love it because it's somebody who was targeted for something really, really horrible. And there are a lot of really horrible things in the world, and what I love about this is, although it happened in a gross and disturbing and violent way, this woman was targeted for something horrible, and she just smacked it down straight into the ground. And I feel like most of the time when you see stories about horrible things, that's not how they end. And you just walk away, you know, thinking about the way the world is and, and not feeling great. But this, it's like, fuck yeah. Emergency room nurse just fucking took out a hitman. I love it. And I love it too. Because Chris takes something that sounds irredeemable and manages to find the light under the bushel. It's a good reminder that even in the worst of situations, you can always, always find something good. Uh, this is something that I think gets talked about a lot to the point where it becomes a cliche, and it's finding success and happiness and good things through failure. 
I think people talk about it a lot, especially like in entertainment-based industries, because everyone inevitably fails a lot in those industries. So here's my experience. When I was in college, I tried to start doing comedy. And I think it was based on like, I you know grew up in a very funny family with brothers. And I remember we, we did this thing one time where we got like a video cassette player and like basically taped our own kind of like shitty SNL, like doing sketches and stuff out on the farm. We did something called the Blair Bunny Project, which was we took like one of the rabbits and like hit it in the kitchen and then like went around the farm with the camera and we're like, ah, oh, there's a monster here somewhere. And then uh, got there and then like, pushed the camera up on the poor rabbit's face and we're like, ah, it's killing us. And uh, so I went to an acting class and I started getting more and more into performing stuff. And the thing that I really enjoyed doing was sketch and improv comedy. So I tried to do some of that with limited success in college, uh, but I did some, some sketch was really fun. And my last year I decided to go check out Second City because a lot of people uh, who I knew, including the wonderful host of this podcast, had been talking about it for a while, and I knew it was sort of the mecca of comedy, and I wanted to have an adventure and, and see what all that was about. So I went out there for a week during the, like, there were like four feet of snow on the ground. It was like, even for Chicago, historically cold and awful. But I loved it because I was taking this week-long intensive uh, improv and writing classes at Second City. They were incredible. Uh, and I have this very clear memory still after well over three years, maybe four years, I was sitting on the top floor of Second City and I had a cheeseburger from McDonald's and I was writing a sketch and I looked up through the big uh, plate glass ceiling of Second City and saw the Chicago skyline. And I was like, this is it. This is where I want to be. I want to come here and do this thing, you know? It struck me with a certainty like I'd never felt before. So I did that, and I went down to Chicago, and I started doing sketch and improv. I remember the first few weeks I was there, I, would go, I went and saw the main stage show at Second City a lot of the time, and, and those people are so incredibly talented, and you know, so many... You know, like Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell, and so many people have come through that, but it's not just that people get famous, it's that those performers are so versatile, they're able to pick up and do anything. It's incredible. They learn to play the French horn in two weeks. It's this class of performer that you don't find. That's what uh, Steve Carell did when he was understudying for Stephen Colbert, I think, or maybe vice versa, but he had he didn't know how to play the French horn, he had to do it in two weeks to cover for the part. and. Uh, that's just the caliber of people working out there. And I was like, I want to be one of these people. I can do this. <laughs> I was out in Chicago. I started taking classes at Second City at IO, which is Improv Olympic in Chicago. And I was having a really great time. And sort of for the past year, I'd never been very good at improv especially, but sort of eventually by the time I graduated college, I sort of had gathered enough knowledge to be okay at it. And I was having fun with it, and people told me, hey, you know, you're, you're really good at this. You should go and do this. And I was doing it in Chicago, and it was really good for a while. And I was sort of doing the classes. People seemed to enjoy doing stuff with me. I was having a lot of fun. But really, it just, as time went on, you know, I went through Second City's Conservatory, which was amazing, and I met great people. And then the next thing that you do after that, uh, if you want to work for them in the future, is you audition for a house team. 
And if you get on that, you perform with them for a while, and then maybe you get hired to a touring company. So that was sort of the track that I saw, you know, to get paid to do this eventually, to, to go towards becoming one of those people. So I went and I auditioned for the house team, didn't get it. I was like, okay, fine, I'll just re-audition. But then they don't do re-auditions anymore. You have to sort of go do a separate show or put up a show. And then if they come see it and like you, then they'll maybe invite you to come re-audition. So I was like, all right, fair enough. My mom always says more than one path to the top of the mountain, which I like a lot. So I started doing a more sketch comedy, which I've always really enjoyed. And uh, went to IO, went through their classes and was like, maybe I'll get put on a Herald team. You know, that's a big deal. And, and then I didn't get that either. And I was like, okay, this is fine, you know, people, people fail, improv is all about failing, it's fine, you know, I'm just gonna come back and keep trying. And then I just ran on that hamster wheel for a while. I always told myself that it's a hard road, improv for sure, and comedy in general. It's tricky for anybody to succeed, but you just have to have the persistence. You just have to hang in there, and eventually something will happen, you just have to keep doing it. And that's just, I was just latched onto that. I was just like, just gonna keep pushing, keep pushing, and get there eventually. And what I didn't even realize at the time that I do now is I was so fixed into that mindset of just having to keep grinding that I had completely forgotten to have any fun with any of the comedy that I was doing. Got to about a year ago, and I was like, all right, so none of the theaters want me. That's fine. The people who end up succeeding are the people who do their own stuff anyway, right? So I should go put my own stuff out there. I should go, you know, get that invite to come uh, re-audition for the house team. Like, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, they don't want me in there, but I'm gonna squeeze my way in. So I went and I wrote and directed a show about pirates, uh, which was super fun. And I put it up at one of Second City's little theaters, and it was really great. It was a wonderful group of people. We had so much fun, and we made back... Um, enough money to pay back the theater plus I think 50 extra dollars which covered about a sixth of the money that I had spent on props and stuff and then it was done and I looked around and was like hmm that didn't really do anything aside from just being an experience you know for it's like of course good and worthwhile for its own sake but I looked around and did not feel a step closer to anything and that was rough because I was like what do I do now do I go and put up, do I go right and put up six more shows just in the hope that maybe I'll invite someone from the Chicago Reader? Uh, and I was like, I, I, I just, I didn't know what to do at that point. I just hit a wall. And I was reading an article about Donald Glover, which you should never do if you're already feeling creatively inferior because he is a god and can do like incredible art in like five different mediums with his eyes closed. It's fucking irritating. But I was reading an article about him and I had this moment which I'm sort of still unpacking I would say. Where I, I tend to be somebody, sorry this is sort of a tangent but it's going to tie back in. I tend to be somebody who's very hard on myself. When someone compliments me I'm like, ah oh, shucks you know, that's not true. I'm the worst. Shut up. Uh but, you know, I do know that I have worthwhile qualities. But this was a moment of really having to come to terms with the fact that, as I read this article, I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm spinning my wheels. I want to do something that's going to make me feel more fulfilled because I've just felt frustrated and blocked. 
and like I haven't been able to do anything for a year now. And then I thought of moving to LA and I was like, well, everyone, I, I've never wanted to move to LA before. Like this city has never appealed to me in the slightest. And I had never seriously considered it until that moment. And then I was like, well, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna give up on comedy? I moved here three years ago to do comedy. That was what I came to do. And now I'm gonna like throw in the towel and go somewhere else and, and do something else. And it was really tough because it was a moment of having to admit to myself that, I ha that if I made this decision, I would be quitting. You know, and I think failing is a subjective term, but it, it did feel like that. It did feel like it felt like a failure. So then I moved out here. But Chris wasn't moving to Los Angeles without a plan. While still in Chicago, he corralled a group of talented friends and created a web series. We made this web series about a regular guy, a demon from another dimension, uh, a puppet, an ascension orb of light living together and having regular roommate problems and... I think we did we did six episodes for a thousand dollars total, which is like nothing. And it was really fun and got a lot of cool experience out of it. He showed the web series to his mom, who happens to be the owner of a successful publishing company and an accomplished writer herself, and she saw something special not just in the series, but in her son. So she was looking at this footage and she really liked the group of people that I had brought together. I think that this is something this is something that I will just take credit for being good at is bringing together groups of people to work on things. And my mom and I were talking about that and she said, because you're good at this, I think we should start a production company and, you know, get, I'm, I'm the boots on the ground going out and finding all these wonderful people and bringing them together to work on really cool stuff. So she invested in that and that's what I've been doing out here in LA. So I met up with all these wonderful people and we started working on stuff. We started working on films and uh, uh, people from Chicago and people from Virginia and we started hanging out and we started doing a bunch of different projects together and I got really this past uh, I've been here six months now and I've really been caught up in just this wonderful sort of cyclone of creativity and good people and I realized that I'm so much happier than I've maybe ever been before I love what I'm doing. I love the people that I'm doing it with. I feel like there are so many opportunities in front of me. And it's funny because, you know, improv is all about not being afraid to fail. Like, if you're not afraid to fail, that's when the really fun stuff will happen on stage. So it's kind of interesting that failing at that art form is what brought me to this really wonderful place in life. Chris's mom says there's more than one way to the top of the mountain. But what if there's another mountain entirely? A mountain whose peak is determined not by your level of professional success, but by something else altogether. There were a lot of wonderful people in Chicago who I love, but I never felt like I had a group of friends in Chicago. I didn't feel that in Chicago, and I felt it so much more here, both with some of the people in Chicago who I actually genuinely love uh, and then people from college who I have a lot more in common with than I did a lot of people in Chicago. Uh, and I don't know, it, it's hard to articulate, but it just feels different and it feels better and it feels like what I needed and it feels like... I, I said this to someone the other day, we're re recording this podcast up in this, up in this attic space next to a Christmas tree and 
I think I said this to you and some other people, but I had a moment where we were up in this attic, I think last week, sitting around a table, all these wonderful people, and I was just looking at them, and everyone just really seemed to belong together. And I had the thought, you know, this is what really matters. And, and it sounds trite, maybe, but I think it's true. People that you really care about and really feel comfortable spending time around, there, there isn't anything more important than that. We're going to close today's program with a small excerpt from one of Chris's favorite novelists. When I ask him why he chose the excerpt that he did, he's quiet for a moment and then gives this thoughtful explanation that I swear will make sense once you hear the story. I always make an effort in life to be a person who can believe anything. I find that the things in life that you have to choose whether or not you believe in them because there is no proof for them, like, you know, ghosts and, and God, I guess you could say, I always choose to believe those things. I make a conscious decision to believe in unlikely things that there is no proof of. And I do that because that is the way that I want to look at the world. That's the way I want to experience life. I want to choose to believe that there are things beyond what I understand, that there are things maybe nobody understands, because it makes me happy to think of the world that way. I think it's good, I think it's good for people. I think it's good for people to try and get themselves to believe in things. One of my favorite writers from when I was a kid is named um, E. Nesbitt, and she wrote so many incredible books, The Enchanted Castle, Five Children and It, uh, The Railway Children. For, they're like very early 1900s, and she has this wonderful voice when she writes. This is from The Enchanted Castle, and it's her narrating the story, but sort of talking to us like she's talking to us as a little aside. She says, When you are young, so many things are difficult to believe, and yet the dullest people will tell you that they are true. Such things, for instance, as that the earth goes round the sun, and that it is not flat but round. But the things that seem really likely, like fairy tales and magic, are, so say the grown-ups, not true at all. Yet they are so easy to believe, especially when you see them happening. And as I am always telling you, the most wonderful things happen to all sorts of people. Only you never hear about them, because the people think that no one will believe their stories. And so they don't tell them to anyone except me. And they tell me because they know that I can believe anything. You've been listening to Good Stuff Happens. I'm Josh Bressler. A big thank you to Chris Bauer for his wonderful thoughts and stories. Our theme song and outro was composed by Connor Garrison. Other music composed by the amazing Josh Friedman and additional score from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. And remember that we live in a world where literally every snowflake that has ever fallen is different. And that's amazing.